Alright, next up is the first fight in the main card. It's a bantamweight bout between the American Sugar Sean O'Malley and Raleigh Paiva from Brazil. Paiva is 21 and 3 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. Quite a big dog here in the money line at plus 250. He's 26 years old, 5'8 in height with 69 and a half inch reach. He's out of Team Alpha Male. As for Sugar Sean O'Malley, he's 14 and 1 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights. Minus 310 to minus 350, depending upon what book you have right now on the money line. He hails from Scottsdale, Arizona, 27 years old, 5'11 in height with 72 inch reach. He trains out of MMA Lab. Now, according to the public vote here on Tapology, as I would imagine, yes, most of the votes are coming in here for O'Malley. 87% to be exact are coming in for O'Malley on Tapology. Looking at the numbers here and the fighters here, just side by side, striking numbers. All right, so Sean O'Malley is an excellent, well, I should say, like elite level striker, as you'll see here when you watch film on him. Um, just elite, kicking, punching, and his striking numbers sort of represent that. He's landing 8.25 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.59. That's an excellent ratio. Obviously, he's landing more than twice the amount of punches that he's receiving. As for Raleigh and Piaiva, he's landing 4.24 strikes per minute, but absorbing 4.9. So not a good ratio there. As for O'Malley, he's not much of a wrestler here. Neither one of these guys are much wrestlers. They're both landing just about 0.6 or just about just over a half a takedown per 15-minute fight. This is a 15-minute fight or three-round fight. So I expect most, if not the entire fight, to be on the feet. Um, for Paeva, it would make sense for him trying to take the fight to the ground. He does have decent grappling and BJJ skills. But Sean O'Malley, you know, for a taller, longer fighter, has excellent takedown defense. Um, even one of his fights... Um, his UFC debut, which we'll talk about, in that fight, he breaks his foot. And at some point, he's sprawling in that fight with one foot. Like, when I mean one foot, like hopping on one foot and still showing good sprawling technique to defend a takedown. So, um, both guys are skilled in takedown defense. Um, takedown defense for Paiva is a little better. 75% takedown defense versus 60% for Sean O'Malley, which, again, I'm a little surprised by because Sean O'Malley has great takedown defense. All right, so let's look here at some background information on the fighters for... Sean O'Malley first. He was born in Montana, actually, all right? So raised in Montana. Looks more like to me like a California kid, you know, like a kid from the out west, but he's actually from Montana. He's got a brown belt in BJJ, 9-2 as an amateur, okay? And I want to mention that that's important to know that the guy had an amateur experience. I think some fighters who are younger, and he's younger, right? These guys are both very young fighters, right? 27, 26, respectively. Um, and their records are, you know, not not a lot of experience, right? 14-1 for O'Malley. Uh, 21 and 3 for Paiva. Actually, Paiva's got more experience there. But the point is for, for O'Malley, it's, it's important to know he did have another six or so fights um, as an amateur. Um, nickname, Sugar Sean O'Malley. Where did it come from? He actually had an old coach in Montana who gave him the name Sugar. So that's where he adopted it from. His pro debut was in 2017 in the Ultimate Fighter 26. He co-hosts a podcast called The Timbo Sugar Show, which I encourage you to listen to. Uh, it's a pretty good podcast. You get to sort of see more about Sugar Sean O'Malley, how he is. Um, he is an advocate of legalizing marijuana, which makes sense by the way he sort of carries himself. Seems like a guy again from Cali. He's a former vegan. He used to be a full-on, like, hardcore vegan. Now he's eating meat again, I think, probably to strengthen those ankle bones, right? Those leg bones, which we'll talk about. His grandmother is Irish, so he does have some Irish blood. So all those Irish fans out there, yes, you can adopt him. His most notable wins were against Thomas Almeida in 2021 and Andre Sakamath. Which that name is Sakamatach. I, I can't even pronounce that name, but that was his UFC debut in 2018. That link's in the description to watch that fight. Please watch that fight because whatever you say about Sugar Sean O'Malley, good or bad, I had a whole new level, a level of respect for this kid after watching that fight versus Andre. It was his UFC debut. He breaks his ankle, fully breaks his ankle at some point during the fight. He keep, keeps, keeps fighting keeps fighting, um, defense takedowns, the fight ends, he's on his back, he wins by decision, uh, Rogan comes over, interviews him on his back, kind of like Conor McGregor style when Conor got hurt, um, but it showed a lot of heart, he won by decision, I mean, you could argue whether he should have won the fight or not, I don't know, whatever, it was close, he did a good job, I think he won on the scorecards, the point is, that to me stuck out, I was like, wow, I didn't realize how rough that fight was for him, how much he went through to endure that fight and actually win the fight by decision, so watch that fight, the links in the description kind of get your own, like, I guess, you know, form your own opinion of him. But I just thought, I thought that was a really notable win for him. And his UFC debut just showed a lot of toughness. His toughest opponent to date was Marlon Vera, who he lost to last year, 2020. And it was a leg injury. Um, that link, too, is in the description. Watch that fight. Because in that fight, you can argue that he took too many kicks from Marlon Vera, which added up. And those leg kicks sort of, you know, started beating up his leg. Or was it just a freak injury? He goes to step. As he goes a step, he just sort of turns his ankle. It's a weird thing. It's it's hard to sort of understand. You have to watch it. But from that point on in the fight, his leg was compromised. 
He falls in his back at some point. Marlon Vera comes in, lands a few shots. It was a very premature stoppage. I feel as if the referee just knew, look, the legs hurt in the fight. So um, tough loss, but good opponent. Marlon Vera's on a two-fight winning streak in the UFC, looking good. Some really big positives here on O'Malley. He's 5-1 in the UFC. Only one loss was by a freak injury. He's got a high finish rate. He's finished four of his last five wins. So his last five wins in total, one decision, four finishes. He's an elite-level striker with his hands, with his feet, excellent range. He's got a height advantage here over his opponent, which he usually has. He's a pretty big guy for that division. And usually overnight between the weigh-in and, and the next day, he, he'll gain between 10 to 15 pounds. So the guy's a chameleon from losing weight to gaining back, back weight and being tall in the division. And he has great striking, great length, long legs, long arms. He uses a very awkward stance. I don't want to say it's karate because that would be not accurate. It's a version of like Conor McGregor, Stephen Thompson, um, just a very unique stance. Hard to hit. His hands are low. So his guard's never really up very much. If his guard is up, there's a problem. That means he's being overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do. Usually he uses his speed, athleticism, ability to avoid, like some version of like Floyd Mayweather, hands being low, but still good defense. Um, so very awkward stance. Hard for fighters to sort of figure him out. Great use of feints. That's one thing that's not, not, not talked about enough in these fighters here is how do they use their feints. O'Malley uses a lot of feints. He'll try to figure out his opponent early on, sort of gauge him, see what his, his, his sort of reaction is to the feints. I love that part of O'Malley's game. Excellent takedown defense. I mentioned it before. For a guy who's tall and long, who looks like he's not a wrestler, you'd be surprised. Very good takedown defense. Now, some negatives on, on, his, on his game for O'Malley. He was a huge favorite against Martinho, which was just a fight a few months ago that that, that link's in the description to watch that film if you would like to watch that film as well but in that fight he comes in a minus 1000 favorite proceeds to struggle at some point when i say struggle i don't mean he's going to lose the fight i mean he can't get the guy out of there he's hitting him with everything but the quote-unquote kitchen sink in round two it's a pretty close round i'm not saying that Martino won the round but a guy who's a minus 1000 favorite shouldn't be in a dog fight he got into a dog fight with this guy round three the fight is called it's called by herb dean my man Herb, not Herb. So Herb Dean calls the fight, and everyone right away was like, why would you stop the fight? Montino was fighting on his feet. He's actually pushing the pace. Gets a win there, gets the finish, but that was a weird one, and one where I just have to, you know, sort of ask the question of, like, did you do your job that night? Were you really a one, minus 1,000 favorite? Leg issues. Let's talk about this. For anyone who likes uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley, you know there's a leg issue, meaning that his UFC debut, he breaks his right foot. I want to make sure I'm clear on this. His right foot, he breaks that foot um, against Andre. He goes on to win the fight by decision. A lot of heart. Amazing. Against Marlon Vera, he rolls the right ankle foot, suffers what I have heard now was his was a Liz Frank injury. That's a unique bone injury. Um, there's a lot of bones in the middle part of your, your foot, okay? The middle part of your foot. I'm not talking about like the, the tippy, tippy toes. I'm not talking about the heel. The middle part has a lot of weird little bones that kind of work together. If you have an injury to some of those little bones, I guess one of those injuries could be a Liz Frank injury, which is a little bit of a tendon and bone issue. Very sensitive, not easy to heal. Some pro players have never come back from that injury. Um, the surgery, surgery is getting better for that injury, but the point is it's still an injury that could be life, I, mean, life, I said life-threatening, career-threatening. So um, that right foot, Liz Frank injury and broken you know, foot. He has not fought a lot of fights, okay? Sean O'Malley is young. Um, so durability... Leg issues, um, taking leg kicks, multiple fights. When you watch him on film, he takes kind of a beating on his legs. His legs are not very big as it is. He has to adjust that his fighting style, either learn how to block or avoid or, or find another technique. Because if you're fighting against him and you don't try to attack his legs or take him down, you're kind of not looking at film here. This guy is susceptible to be taken down and being on his back, having a hard time, and his leg kick defense is not very good. So, Fatigue. I thought he punched himself out against Montinho. Now, not punched himself out to the point where he lost the fight. But at some point, he didn't manage his output very well. He got tired. Deep breaths. Looking at the clock. Um, a better fighter than Montinho may have been able to find a way to, I don't say win the fight, but put him even in some you know harder positions. So in that fight, I saw some holes in that he didn't manage his energy very well. He was clock watching a lot. His arms were down, deep breaths. Montino backed him up at times, actually forced, you know, the pace. And so when you have a guy like O'Malley, who's a minus 1,000 favorite, who is an excellent striker. I mean, the guy's top to bottom elite. You want to see him do better in those kind of situations. Um, all right, so 
Let's go here, looking at uh, Raleon Paiva. So Paiva, he was born and raised in Brazil. He started his MA career at the age of 18. That's when he really got into it. He actually drops out of college. He was an IT major, um, kind of like immersed himself all into mixed martial arts, stops going to college. In 2018, that same year, him and his girlfriend, it's kind of a, a rough little patch in his life. They go to a nightclub. They're out, hanging out, get their motorcycle, go home. Somebody hits them with a car. The same, I guess, group of dudes, he got into it with the nightclub, a little bit of disagreement. They hit him. His girlfriend, unfortunately, suffers like a head injury. She goes into a coma for six days, and then she dies. He's totally fine, like minor injuries. He still wears a mouth guard with her name on it now for every fight and sort of like a remembrance of her. So kind of a rough patch there for him, but also serves as some motivation for him. So if you see her name or words written on Paeva's uh, mouthpiece, it's in honor of his ex-girlfriend. I shouldn't say ex-girlfriend, whatever, his girlfriend who passed away. Is that Can you say ex-girlfriend when she passed away, I guess? It, it is an ex from that standpoint, but not an ex because it meant to be. Anyway. The point is, he starts off uh, 2018, Dana White Contender Series, Brazil. He appeared in that show. That's kind of like how he got into the UFC. His biggest, most notable fight was against Kaikar France, where he lost by split decision 2019, and Kaikar France is on this card. Good fighter. I like him to win his fight, actually. His biggest career win was against Zagas Zumagulov in 2020. Now, that was Zumagulov's UFC debut. Not a big-time name, but gives you a glimpse here. Even though I think Raleon Paiva is a good fighter, he doesn't have notable wins. Doesn't have a pedigree of fighting a lot of top fights. Sugar Sean O'Malley will by far be his toughest opponent. In terms of his weapons, his grappling is probably one of his best weapons. You know, he's Brazilian. He's got the roots, got the genes, right? It's in the it's in the water down there. But doesn't use it a lot. Against Sugar Sean O'Malley, it could be a path to him to win a round. That's important in this fight. This, this fight could be 1-1 one, one going around, you know, three. So winning just a round is important. If he could use his grappling... Help him out. He's a shorter fighter. Get underneath, you know, Sean O'Malley's chin. Bring him to the ground. His second most important weapon is a balanced attack. He does kicking, punching, very balanced overall. Now, some pros and cons here on Paeva. I do like the fact that even though he started off 0-2 oh, in the UFC, now he's on a three-fight winning streak. So he starts off the UFC, oh my god, 0-2. Oh Two good opponents, by the way. Um, and the Bontarine fight actually was stopped because of, a, of a, just a weird cut over his eye. So who knows what happened in that fight. But anyway... Now he's whipped off a three-fight winning streak. I like that. Solid chin. So against Phillips, that fight that fight links in the description as well. He gets cracked round one. It could have been a 10-8 round. It was pretty rough for him. But overall, he's able to recover, respond, wins round two, wins round three. So has has shown an ability to basically recover from being stung, being hurt. He was very hurt in that first round. Now, here's the negatives here on Paeva. A low finish rate. Okay, he's, his last four wins, he's got only one finish. He took a lot of damage versus Phillips early on in that fight. If he does that kind of approach or takes that kind of damage in round one against Sean O'Malley, I don't know he survives out of that first round. Now, Sean O'Malley, say what you want. He couldn't knock out Montinho, who I think might just be like, I don't know, a mutant. His hair was green. He might be a mutant, that guy. That guy took so much punishment in that fight. It's amazing. But if he does that here to, um, to, to Paeva, Paiva won't survive the first round. I think O'Malley will finish him. And I think O'Malley wants to finish the fight early on, not to go round two, round three, you know, taking more damage to his legs. So another thing about Paeva, he's very hittable. His head movement is not great, okay? When you look at the Kyler Phillips fight, he took a lot of damage in round one, and partially because he walks a little sloppy. So when he comes in on a fighter, he'll come in square. His shoulders are square. His chin's up very high. He's, you know, doing this kind of stuff, and it's like you're so open to a counter and Sean O'Malley is an elite level striker elite elite no one will tell you otherwise in UFC he may not have the, the best punching power he may not have KO power he may have durability issues in his leg um, grappling whatever but when it comes to just simply striking speed quickness combinations O'Malley is elite so for these two fighters here the film that we watched on these fighters we watched a lot of film on O'Malley we watched the Montino fight 2021 the Almeida fight 2021 the Vera fight 2020 the Andre Sakamath Toth, that's so hard to say. That fight is UFC debut 2018. And also there's a link there for a grappling bout 2019 against Gomez, where he actually wins by a round one rear naked choke. Those are all links for Sean O'Malley in the description. As for Paeva, we watched the Kyler Phillips fight and the Gulov fight. Both those links are in the description as well. So watch them for yourself. This fight, I'm going with Sugar Sean O'Malley to win. He's the favorite to win the fight. It's not like, you know, a tough pick for me from the standpoint that I'm, you know, going against the grain. But the people that pick Paev are going to pick him for pretty much one reason, and one reason only. Sean O'Malley's durability in his lower legs. If you knew that Sean O'Malley was shored up and was not going to suffer some kind of a lower leg issue, ankle, whatever, shin, you would then be all over on, on O'Malley. He's the better striker. Um, he's taller. He's going to have a size advantage. Paeva, 
you know, is allows himself to get hit. Um, he doesn't have a grappling major advantage. Papayev is not going to really grapple anyway. So it, it leans you back to O'Malley when you think about the legs not being a factor. Now, factor in the legs. Yeah, Paiva is a live dog. <laughs> he's a live dog. At plus 250, he's a live dog. This is the reason why I probably will not put Sean O'Malley as a top ticket on my parlays. Can't do it. Um, I will have some concern. I will not bet him straight up at minus 310. In this fight right here, I think you're better off finding within the distance as the main prop. These are minus 110, so the fight just does knock the distance. Someone finishes it. Either Paiva comes in there, kicks the hell out of O'Malley's legs, gets to round two, round three, and O'Malley's just having a hard time, durability issues, and doesn't hold on. Which, if O'Malley's on his back in this fight, holding his ankle, watch the film links of the past. You know, watch the Andre fight. You know, watch the fight against Marlon Vera. He's on his back at the end of the fight, holding his ankle. It's like you could see that happening again. At the same time, they did him some justice here with this this matchup. I think it's a great matchup for O'Malley. You have a guy who is open to be a hit, hit, hit doesn't have great defense, um, has his head up very high. It's almost the perfect matchup here for O'Malley. And with the UFC, no offense to Paeva, but Sugar Sean is like, you know, it's the Sugar Shane show, man. It's it's his show. Um, and he's the kind of guy where he's got an audience, he's got some fans, got some, you know, got the pod, podcast going. Um, he's got the Irish link, you know. The American mixed martial art fans and even fans over in Europe, whatever, they love this guy. So from that from that standpoint, it was a good matchup for him. I don't imagine him losing the fight. Now, if he loses, if it's a leg situation or a durability thing or just Paiva upsets him, man, this is going to be a huge setback for him. If you ask Sean O'Malley if he's undefeated, he'll say, yes, I'm undefeated. I've never lost. The fight against Vera doesn't count. I guess you have to be that way when you're fighters or that mentality. I've never been beat. But here's the reality here. You did lose that fight, and it wasn't maybe because of your mentality. It was because of the physicality. And the physical didn't support the mentality. You can only go so far. Now, he's 27 years old. When he's 47, he'll realize what I'm saying right now, which is you could want in your head all the hell you want. You could think in your mind, I'm the best ever done, you've ever done it. But if you can't, you know, your body can't withstand it, at some point you have to acknowledge that too. So for Sugar Sean O'Malley, there's only one thing standing between him and a victory, and that's basically his body, his physiology. Can that withstand whatever Paiva does? I think it does. I think he wins the fight. One more thing on Sean O'Malley. Here's a guy who has the, like the highest level of potential, right? Tons of potential. I like everything about the guy in terms of what he brings, the attitude, the show, showmanship. Doesn't seem to be disrespectful. A lot of positives. But I fear he might be one of those guys who, when we look back later on, it's like, remember that guy? The best it never was. You know, like he was so talented, but the injuries, the durability kind of kept him back. And so, you know, I hope that's not the case because I think the guy's got the world of potential. He's exciting. He's tall. Other side note, too, this is a bantamweight fight. I think he moves up in weight at some point in his career. He is super duper tall for this division. He's going to have a three-inch height advantage here over Paeva. He's going to have a three-inch reach advantage over Paeva. I think he can move up in the future, but again, it goes back to durability. Can he take those leg kicks, take that punishment? One more thing on Paeva. Again, if he's watching film, please, you got to attack the legs. Do it early and often. See if O'Malley's sure if his leg defense will switch, you know, switch stances, whatever. Attack his legs, look to grapple him. If Paeva doesn't do that, and actually wants to make this a striking match. Like, let's see who could box better. <laughs> no, Aladdin. Okay, Paiva is going to be on his back before he knows it. And again, if he fights the way he fought against Phillips, this will be a fast fight. This breakdown went way too long, but I, I like this fight. It's a matchup that I'm looking forward to. I'm sure the fans are as well. If you're betting on the fight, just take within a distance, guys. Minus 110. That's the best prop bet here. Don't gamble. You're gambling on O'Malley to win, and you're gambling on Paiva to win. Because what you're doing is that minus 310, that's too chalky. And that plus 250, oh, it looks tempting until he gets struck out of there by O'Malley with a ton of strikes and just overwhelming, or even goes to decision, right? So if it goes to decision, that would have to imagine this, that Paeva takes all, like hundreds of strikes because O'Malley's output's crazy. Paeva would have to eat hundreds of punches to go to decision. Not going to be the case. Again, O'Malley, most likely inside the distance, freak situation, Somehow hurts himself, catches his foot in the cage, breaks his ankle, something weird, kicks Paeva. I can see him kicking Paeva, hitting Paeva like in the head, Paeva being stunned, and O'Malley breaking his foot on Paeva's head. Like that kind of shit would happen in this fight. Anyway, that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. I like O'Malley to win the fight outright, but I think the best bet in this fight right here is going to be the prop for under minus 110.
Next up, we got a flyweight bout between the American Cody Garbrandt and Kai Car France from New Zealand. Now, France is 22 and 9 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. A slight dog here at plus 150 in the money line. He's 28 years old, 5 foot 4 in height with 66 and a half, 66 and a half inch reach. He trains at a city kickboxing in New Zealand. As for Cody Garbrandt, who goes by no love, he's 12 and 4 overall, but he's 1 and 4 in his last five fights. Kind of a bit of a rough patch, but still a favorite here at minus 175 on the money line. He's from Sacramento, California, 30 years old. 5 foot 8 height with 65 and a half inch reach. He's from Team Alpha Male and Strong Style Fight Team. So just right there off the bat, you see there's a 4 inch height advantage for Cody, but a 1 inch reach advantage there for Kai Kai of France. So kind of an interesting dynamic. As for the public vote on Tapology, it's pretty much down the middle with Garbrandt getting 54% of the votes and 46% of the votes coming in here for Kai Kai of France. Now looking more at the numbers here on these, both these fighters here, France is landing 5.02 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.84. Nice ratio there. Cody's landing 3.17 strikes per minute, but he's absorbing 4.14. Not a good ratio. He's, he's literally absorbing one more strike per minute, and he's dishing out. Now, for takedown offense, France is landing just under a half a takedown pretty much per 15 minutes. So just no takedown offense in the case of Mr. France. For Cody Garbrandt, he's landing just one takedown per 15 minutes. So one takedown per three-round fight is a three-round fight. So could we imagine Cody Garbrandt getting one takedown? Yes. And France getting no takedowns? Yes. Most of the fight will be on the feet. Um, for Cody Garbrandt, he's a pretty good boxer. He likes to crack. He's got a lot of heart. For takedown defense, these guys are more or less equal, as you can see on the screen, with 86% takedown defense for France and 83% takedown defense for Garbrandt. Now, looking at the notes I have on these fighters here. So starting off with Cody Garbrandt, he started his career off 11-0 with nine finishes in his first 11 fights. So amazing start. Like, got off hot, really hot, right? Most notable wins were against Rafael Asunco, which was in 2020, and Dominic Cruz in 2016. Those are his most notable wins. So not big-time names. You know, Rafael Sunko and Dominic Cruz, decent fighters, right? He's 74 in the UFC. Very positive. That's a good record having the UFC. He's lost four of his last five fights, which we just talked about. Now, he was favored to win, or he was a pick'em in, la in his last five fights. So imagine this. He's one in four in his last five fights, and going into those five fights, he was either a pick'em or favored to win. So keep that in mind right now. He's favored to win this fight, and it's kind of a pick'em. He's fighting in a lower weight class. So interestingly enough now, here's a guy who's kind of big for this division, right? Tall. He's already lean. He's always been lean. He's going to lose more weight now to come down. That could play a role. Could it diminish his power? Could it just be a really tough weight cut? Some Lose some cardio in round, late round two, round three. Either way, it's going to be a test. It's not necessarily a negative, but it's going to be a test for him. It's going to be another factor for so him. As for Kai Kai of France, he's from New Zealand, as we mentioned before. He started BJJ at the age of 10 years old. He was actually in college when he got into mixed martial arts. He saw an ad on Facebook that Tiger Muay Thai was offering a scholarship program for you know athletes who want to try out whatever. He goes through the whole trial program, audition, actually gets the award of the scholarship, moves to Thailand, drops out of college, um, pursues his mixed martial art dream. From there, he ends up moving back to New Zealand where he's at City Kickboxing. But that was uh, his sort of like his break into mixed martial arts, his actual break into you know training at a top play program and starting to fight in the regional scene. He was in 2016 Ultimate Fighter. Him and his wife have a son together. His most notable wins were against Raliana Pava, 2019, Rogero Bontarine, 2021, and Mark De La Rosa, 2019. So those are somewhat recent wins, but not big-time fights, not big-time names. And the same goes as well for Cody Garber. Neither one of these guys has really beaten anyone who's really notable. They've, now, for Cody Garber, he did fight against Dillashaw and he had some you know, tough fights, but I'm just saying wins-wise. Most, the most valuable weapon here for Kai Kai France is his punching power. His striking power is pretty damn good. Uh, not, I'm not saying elite, but it's above average. Some positives on Kai Kai France. He's 5-2 and two overall in the UFC. Very good record. He's got 11 career wins, and of those 11 career wins, career wins, nine of those are by TKO, and two of those are by sub. So he's finished 11 people overall in the octagon, 11 career finishes. Very, very impressive. High output. He lands five strikes or more per minute. Good gym, city kickboxing. So great gym, great great teammates. He's right Sanya, all those different guys over there. Now, some some negatives here on Kakao France. He's got a low finish rate, all right? He's had one finish in his last five wins. So he's got one finish in his last five wins. You know, shows you that he's either tailing off um, or his power is diminishing or his power is not there when he goes against higher competition, right? Two and two in his last four fights. Not great. The fights we watched in these two fighters to break down the film. We watched Kai Kaikara France versus Bontanillo in 2021 and Kai Kaikara France versus Roy Val in 2020. 
Garbrandt vs. Font, 2021, Garbrandt vs. Asunko, 2020, and Garbrandt vs. Munoz, 2019. So those those links are in the description to watch those fights if you want to watch those fights yourself. This is a close fight, guys. I would imagine there's a chance Cody Garbrandt could hurt Kaikara France. And in that case, yeah, all bets are off, right? That's kind of a unique phrase. All bets are off. They're not off. They're still on. You're either winning or losing, right? I just imagine at plus one money, plus 130, you know, any kind of plus money here in Kaikara France, is a great spot to be in. I think Cody Garbrandt, you know, a guy who came in with so much steam, who had a nice winning streak, you know, um, this one in four in his last five fights is an indicator that when he steps up against higher competition, he's having a problem. Now, is Kai Kara France that higher competition? Yeah, that's debatable. That's debatable. I'm not so sure he's that higher competition. But what I am sure of is he's a tough mofo. He's got a decent record in the UFC. Um, he's fought good competition. He's got a balanced attack. The fight's going to be on the feet. And Cody Garbrandt's going to be sucking weight to come down to this lower weight division. So I just feel as if in this situation here, the the, the money line being being favored towards Cody Garbrandt, I think speaks to the fan base. His name. Um, he's an exciting fighter. Even just the tattoos, his whole like aura, his swag, the way he carries himself. I like Cody Garbrandt. I mean, a part of me kind of wants the guy to win the fight. I'm rooting for him. But the numbers suggest here, even just the striking numbers, the landing numbers, the output, the Kakaio French is a sharper fighter here. Age is not a factor. The guys are 28, 30 years old, respectively. Size is not as much of a factor as people are making it out to be. So people are saying, oh, Cody Garbrandt is much taller. Like, taller what, though? He's got the shorter arms, you know? So if we can just punch with each other for four or five rounds, whatever, three rounds, actually, I'm sorry, three-round fight, I'm still giving the advantage to Kakaio France. So... That's the breakdown, guys. I like Kyra Kyra France to win the fight. It should be close, probably by decision. I do think Cody Garbrandt's got a chin that at times can be, let's say, penetrated. But overall, I, I also think that he's he's a tough dude. I think he can survive, you know, three rounds here with Kyra France. I think a decision's going to be close, two to one, maybe even a split. I like a dog here, though. I like Kyra Kyra France. That's my breakdown, guys. Next up on the main card, we've got a welterweight bout between Jeff Neal, the American fighter, and Santiago Pantanibio from Argentina. Pantanibio goes by Argentine Dagger. He's 28-4 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. A slight favor to the money line, or it depends on what book you're looking at. So like minus 110 to minus 125. He's 35 years old, 6 foot in height with 73 inch reach. He trains out of American top team in Florida. As for Jeff Neal, who goes by Hands of Steel, he's 13-4 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Actually on a two-fight losing streak. He's a slight dog at plus 105. This is a pick'em though. Dallas, Texas is where he hails from, 31 years old. He's 5'11 in height with 75-inch reach. He trains out of Fortis MMA. So according to Tapology Public Vote here, Ponce and is the favorite, getting 75% of the votes and only 25% of the votes coming in for Neil. I'm a little surprised. Um, I think Neil, who's the younger fighter, has got a quickness advantage, should match up well. You know, fights are about matchups, right? Or about styles. This is a fight that'll be 99.9% .9 on the feet. Both guys like to box. Um, and that seems to favor a guy like Neil. Not that Santiago can't box, um, but I think it favors a guy like Neil. Let's look at the striking numbers here on these fighters. So Jeff Neil's landing 4.42 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 4.68. Um, Santiago's dishing out 4.65 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.38. So very similar, right? Numbers are so similar there. In terms of their takedown offense, Jeff Neal's landing just over a half a takedown per 15 minutes or per three-round fight, uh, whereas Santiago's landing just about the same, just about a half Pons a takedown. You're landing 0.46 takedowns per 15 minutes, so about the same number there for Jeff Neal and Santiago in terms of the takedown offense. For takedown defense, Neal's defending at 87% rate, very good, and Santiago 60%. Those numbers should not be a factor. Again, Neal likes to push his opponent up against the cage sometimes, but actually taking him down, no, that's really not his uh, his wheelhouse. So I like Neil to win the fight. Let me just talk about the elephant in the room. On Thanksgiving here just recently, um, Jeff Neal was cited for possibly a DUI and a weapons charge. But I want to explain this because when you read the article, you know, you have to read to the end of the article. He gave a blood test, okay, in the state of Texas where this happened at. The weapons charge is because he was under the influence. It wasn't because the weapon was illegal. All right. So in the state of Texas, if you're, you know, doing something else illegal, you're under the influence, <clears throat> you're not supposed to have access to a weapon. So in the event the blood test comes back and he was below um, the limit, you know, um, for being allowed to drink and drive or whatever, um, that sounded weird when I said being allowed to drink and drive. You know what I mean? Below the limit. Then he would, in essence, have both charges dropped. Now, at this point, the UFC is aware of it. 
you know, ESPN, everyone's aware of what's going on. He's still going to be allowed to fight. Um, I like to say, though, you know, you are innocent, right, until proven guilty. And maybe it was just late. It was Thanksgiving. He was tired. Um, a lot of factors could have been in play. So I'm crossing my fingers for Jeff Neal that this ended up being just, you know, maybe just a little bit of poor decision-making, but also just being tired, and the blood work comes back, and it's on his side. Um, I have to imagine with Dana White and the UFC, um, they do care about their image, right? Protect the shield like the NFL. I would have to imagine they have some information about what's going on and probably feel positive that this would actually going to work out um, as it goes through the legal loopholes or system, right? So that's the elephant in the room. I think that's why people are on Santiago too in part. Um, that's That maybe explains the number here of people on Tapology because when you look at the fighters side by side, you break them down, they're very similar, okay? Um, they have a lot of similarities, but there's definitely a quickness advantage for Jeff Neal. There's definitely going to be uh, a snap to his punches that Santiago doesn't quite have. And you have to wonder right now with Santiago at 35 years old, 28-4, 32 total fights, very good record, don't get me wrong, but it's it's not just me wondering, is this the tail end here, okay? Um, he's starting to show some signs that possibly um, – He's getting towards the end of his career, right? So let's talk here details about Santiago. He was born in Argentina, started kickboxing at 13 years old, moved to Brazil. Amazing story of how he moved there as a teenager and lived on the beach for five months in a tent, trained at local gyms, did odd jobs to just make ends meet. So the guy's got a level of hunger and drive that, you know, most people don't have. You know, he loved MMA. He's done a lot to be where he's at. He's very proud of his career. He turned pro in 2008. He was in the Ultimate Fighter 2013. He won several matches during that Ultimate Fighter um, event. He had a knockout that actually earned him a $50,000 bonus. It was the knockout of the season. He does Spanish coverage for Latin America, for UFC, so he does work in the broadcast. Notable wins, his most notable wins over Mike Perry in, by decision 2017. He beat Sean Strickland by decision 2015, and he beat Neil Magny, which is not a big name, but it's gonna come back around here. He beat Neil Magny, round four TKO 2018. Now, Jeff Neal, his opponent here, lost a decision to Neil Magny earlier this year. So it's some MMA math. I don't think it's very relevant, but just want to put it out there. They both fought Neil Magny, and in that case, Santiago got the win by, by knockout, and Jeff Neal lost to Neil Magny. Now, some positives here that I like a lot on Santiago. He's fought very good competition over his career. He's won eight of his last nine fights. He's got a solid finish rate, okay? So the last six finishes that he's have that have all been by KO, and he's finished four of his last eight fights, okay? So he's finished half of his last eight wins have been by finish. All of his finishes are pretty much by TKO or KO, which I mentioned. Six of those have been by that. Now, he's only got one submission finish in his entire career. It was over 10 years ago. So even though he comes from Brazilian scene, from South America, looks like he would be a grappler, a wrestler, he is not. Neither one of these guys is going to wrestle or grapple. Neil will push him up against a cage a little bit, but that's about it. I do like the fact that Ponte Nebu is a very active fighter. He's going to be his third, third fight of the year. Now, back in 2018 to 2020, he didn't fight for like a 26-month period. Reason being was some of that was during COVID, but also had some injuries, had some hospitalizations, you know, had a, a staph infection, a bone infection, went through a lot, so lost some time. He's hungry. He wants to get back in the cage. I like that aspect, too. At 35 years old, he knows it's now or never. Got to get in there. Got to be busy, right? Um, he's lost two fights in the last eight years. Very impressive. Now, some things that are concerning for me about Pontanibio, the KO lost to Lee. Now, Lee is one and two in his last three fights. He's a pretty good fighter, but he's one and two in his last three fights, and that one win was against Pontanibio, and he knocked out Pontanibio in round one. It was a beautiful combination um, that Lee landed. Going into that fight, I do want to mention that Pontanibio was like a minus 335 favorite. Okay, so not, not a great look there, right? He's been finished in his last two losses, okay? He lost as a big favorite, like I said, against Lee. His leg defense against both Baeza and Lee. Those are the two fights we reviewed here. So the Baeza fight and the Lee fight. He gets his front leg chewed up in both fights. Even though the fight against Lee doesn't last very long, Lee is landing hard lower leg kicks. If you're watching film on this guy and you've got lower leg kicks as part of your arsenal, you're going to attack that. Now, that does not really pertain to, to Neil in this situation. He's not a big kicker. He's just more of a puncher. Okay. Um, the question I have here at the end of re reviewing Santiago is, is he over the hill? Like, of course, he's maybe not in his prime anymore, right? But at 28 and 4, he's fought some very good competition over his career. There seems to be something there that indicates that he's slowing down. And obviously, he's 35. He's getting older. But, like, you can see significant pattern of slowing down against a guy like Neil who's got quick punches that go straight down the pipe. He can get, he can get hurt. He can get clipped here. I can see that happening. And so the question of is he over the hill, you know, I ask that with a lot of respect. The guy's had a phenomenal career. Very proud of what he does. Hopefully, even if he's not fighting anymore, he stays with UFC, continues to do the coverage. Now, as for Jeff Neal, 
He's a former he's a former college football player. Played at Texas Lutheran, but didn't finish his college football career per se. Decided to go into mixed martial arts. Didn't really enjoy the football program as much. So that was how he got into mixed martial arts as a college you know student athlete. He was on Dana White's Contender Series in 2017. He had a round one finish to earn a contract. Um, notable wins for him, or notable fights. I'm sorry, not notable wins. Notable fights. He did lose to Kevin Holland by TKO in 2017. He lost to Stephen Thompson via decision in 2020. The biggest win of his career, Mike Perry, round one TKO, uh, Nico Price, round two TKO, and Bilal Muhammad by decision. So decent wins there. His most valuable weapon is boxing. Okay, Not his kicking, not his grappling, not his wrestling, not his submit, just flat-out hands. The guy's got hands, and he knows how to throw those hands quickly. So that's his path to victory is either knocking out Pontanibio with some nice punches or just adding them up on the scorecard and winning by decision that way. Some, pro- some really big positives here on Neil. He's 5-2 and two in the UFC. Very good competition. High finish rate. The dude has finished 10 of his 13 career wins. So it was 13 wins, 10 times he has finished the guy in front of him. Very impressive. Active fighter. This will be his second fight this year. Now some negatives here on Neil. And I'm, I'm really reaching here. I just want to find the, the details of what would be his weakness, right? He's got back-to-back losses. But even those losses, kind of close. Not the end of the world, both by decision. The issue is, though, is he's starting to feel the pressure now. Just had this little issue outside the octagon. That's a little stressful. A third loss in a row in the UFC. Could that now be you know, possibly the end of his contract with UFC? Do they cut him? I don't think they would cut him. He seems like a very good prospect. Um, he's still young, young enough, 31. But you know, I, I just wonder how that plays mentally on him, right? He doesn't have a submission game and has no wrestling game. It will not matter in this fight, but that's going to be a factor for him. He's got one submission finish. It was actually over 10 years or about 10 years ago. And it was his first UFC or first MMA fight. I'm sorry, his first pro, his pro debut. Um, so the wrestling and submissions, you know, that's going to eventually have a, have, a, have a way of catching up with him down the line. For this fight, it won't be a factor. This fight is about styles, right? And styles make matchups, whatever, or they make good fights. It'll be on the feet. Both guys punching each other and bagging. I imagine something similar to the Baeza fight. If you watch the Baeza fight with Ponsonibio, they're just swinging at the end, back and forth and back and forth like a Rocky movie, and it ends like, that way. I could see this fight going a little bit like that. The film that we reviewed for this fight, we watched the Ponsonibio versus Lee film, 2021, Ponsonibio versus Baeza, 2021, Neil versus Magny in 2021, and Neil versus Thompson in 2020. Those links, as usual, are in the descriptions. You can watch those fights on your own. That's our breakdown. You know, I, I do believe it's going to be a close fight. Um, if Jeff Neal and the recent stuff outside the octagon is going to weigh on him mentally, it could be a factor in him not showing up in his best. Then the weigh-in will be interesting to watch to see how he looks for the weigh-in. And for Santiago Pontanibio, look, he is the veteran. He's got a higher fighter IQ, okay, in terms of being in the octagon, a lot more experience. A younger version of him, I take him every day to win this fight. But it's not a younger version of him, okay? I think we're seeing that he is getting a little older. Neal... The time is now for him. I think he's going to have the quicker hands. Wouldn't be surprised if a prop that you want to look at here is Jeff Neal by some kind of a TK within, within the distance. But I'm also not surprised if it just goes to decision and then Jeff Neal picks up decision win by points. So good luck with this fight, guys. Okay, we're up to the co-main event here for UFC 269. It's going to be a bantamweight bout for the title. Amanda Nunes, the title holder, is defending her belt against Juliana Pena. Pena goes by the Venezuelan Vixen. She's 10-4 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, plus 600 on the money line. She's from Spokane, Washington, 32 years old, 5'6 in height with 69-inch reach. She trains, out of six, she trains out of six jitsu. As for Amanda Nunes, the Lioness, she's 21-4 overall, currently on a 12-fight winning streak. A big favorite here at minus 800 on the money line. She hails out of Miami, Florida, though she's got Brazilian roots. 33 years old, 5'8 in height with 69-inch reach. She trains out of American Top Team and also MMA Masters. According to the Tapology public vote, by no surprise, Nunes is getting 96% of the votes here. Only 4% are coming in for Pena. And uh, yeah, I think Nunes wins the fight. This will be a pretty quick breakdown. I'm going to give you some background information on both the fighters here. Uh, first up, the man of Nunes. So she started fighting at 16 years old in terms of BJJ training down in Brazil. She came up pretty humble beginnings, not a very rich family, but had just enough to kind of help her out with her training. Um, fighting runs in the family, actually. Her mom, former boxer. Her uncle was a boxer. Her mom used to corner for her uncle. Uh, so it runs in the family. She started training more seriously at the age of 17 years old, and actually she left home at 17 to move um, into a, her friend's house at a, next to a local gym, um, but then she just said, you know what, forget about that, I'm actually going to move into the gym. It's kind of a nice story. Uh, if you find information on the web, you can read up on it, but she moves into the gym at 17. She's the only girl in the gym. Uh, she's living there, training there, working there, and just like pretty much immerses her whole life into that, um, and she talks about it now, even to today, um, as a very good part of her life, something she really looked forward to, how it really just, you know, 
It's positive vibes, even though she didn't have very much. Reminds me of how Khabib and some of his teammates from back when they first started out in Dagestan with their fa- his father training him. It was very humble beginnings. They didn't have a lot of stuff. They didn't have like running showers or hot water. Um, but you hear the way Khabib talks about it. You hear the way that uh, Amanda Nunes talks about it. It's the ingredients for greatness, right? They had to go through some really tough challenges. But uh, anyway, she made her debut in 2013 with Ultimate Fighter. Um, she came up through Invicta and Strike Force, which some of this information is re- re- repetitive. You know this stuff about Amanda Nunes, but figure for anyone who doesn't know about this stuff. Give you some tidbits, all right? Um, she's a current Bantamweight and Featherweight champion. She's holding two belts at the same time. Only woman to do that. She appeared in the movie Bruised with Halle Berry, which I did know that, but when I read that, I was like, that's right. She did appear in a major motion picture there with Halle Berry. Some trivia here about Amanda Nunes. She has not lost a fight in seven years. And who was the last person to beat her? Take a second. Take a second. Kat Zingano. And it was TKO. So she actually got knocked out. Well, not knocked out. Whatever. TKO. Uh, Ground and Pound. 2014. Seven years ago. Okay. Her lo- she lost her pro debut. It's another little bit of trivia on Amanda Nunes. Her pro debut loss uh, to Anna Maria, who finished her career 5-5. Five and five. Not very much of a fighter. She lost to Alexis Davis in 2011 via TKO. I thought that was a very interesting little tidbit there on Amanda Nunes' tapology. Just a little trivia on her. Her most notable wins. Now, here's we get to the juice. So, most notable wins there for Amanda Nunes. She beat Holly Holm via TKO in 2019. She beat Chris Cyborg by TKO in 2018. Both those were round one TKOs. <laughs> she also beat Valentina Shevchenko by decision twice, once in 2016 and once in 2017. And I guess the second one was a split decision win, and there's controversy there. But the point is she won the fight. Those are her most notable wins. Oh, she also beat some lady named Ronda Rousey. You may have heard of her, and she knocked her out, too, in round one. Some more positives here on Amanda Nunes. Her boxing. Um, her boxing is phenomenal. Um, and not just for a woman fighter. She's just a very good boxer, period. She's got a high finish rate. She has finished nine of her last 12 fights. Think about that. She's finished nine of her last 12 fights. And uh, yeah, she's dominant. She's amazing. Um, if she's a minus 800, she tends to finish those people. So again, nine of the last 12 fights, she's finished high level of competition. Um, this is a 12-fight winning streak, right? So 12-fight winning streak that includes people like Valentina Shevchenko, Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, Shevchenko again, Raquel Pennington, Chris Cyborg, Holly Holm, Jermaine Randeming, Felicia Spencer, Megan Anderson, Sarah McCann, Shayna Bazier. Uh, yeah, she's beaten a lot of very, very good fighters, high level of competition. She's also a pretty active champion. This will be the second time she's fighting this year. Um, last few years, she's been fighting about once a year, some years, twice a year. But again, for being a champion, very active. I do like that. Um, no signs of slowing down. Uh, she had a baby, what, two years ago with uh, Nina Nunez, maybe a year ago. Um, her partner, her wife, and uh, doesn't seem like that's slowing her down at all. She, she talked about it in recent interviews. That's inspiration for her. Um, just maybe helps her, you know, focus even more on what's important to her. So on that note, I, I can't really come up with any negatives here on Amanda Nunes. Like, well, what am I going to come, come up with some story about how she's getting older, she's slowing down, or she's not as quick as she used to be. I mean, there's not, there's nothing you could find there with her. She's such a positive person. She's positive inside the octagon, outside the octagon, a lot of respect from her mutual, you know, for teammates, people that don't fight with her on a day-to-day basis. They respect her, uh, fans seem to respect her, um, just up and down a positive person with a lot of positive vibes. Now. The only thing I can think of, and I'm just reaching here, she does have a child now. She is married. Um, You know, things get put in perspective when you get married and have kids. I know it was for me. You know, things that used to be really important to you, they don't become as important because now you have more important things to think about, right? Does that mean she's not training? No. Does that mean that she hates mixed martial arts and doesn't want to focus? No. I'm just saying um, if she were to drop a weird fight like this against someone like Pena, I think that's one of the first things that someone could point to is like, listen... She's been on top. She's the perfect, she's the model of, of a champion. And uh, at some point, it's hard to stay on top. You know, you make a mistake, you lose your focus. You know, you're not being tested as much as you want to be. So anyway, that's all I can come up with. <laughs> Amanda Nunez is an amazing champion. Let's talk here about uh, Juliana Pena. So she's Venezuelan and Mexican, though she was born in Spokane, Washington. So she's got family from both sides of that part of the world. But she was born in Spokane, raised in Spokane, Graduated from high school up there in Washington, went to Spokane Community College, and actually during her time in community college is when she started working out in mixed martial arts just to kind of lose some weight, trim up, stay in shape. And that was like her introduction into mixed martial arts. Eventually, she goes over to Sigjitsu, which is in Spokane, Washington as well. So she never left her state from that standpoint. She grew up there, lived there, went to college there, and then now she's training there out of uh, Sigjitsu. First woman to win the Ultimate Fighter. So she won the championship first time, and, and that was via TKO. That was 2013. So she was the first ever woman to win and be on the Ultimate Fighter. I thought it was a really cool little factoid there about Juliana Pena. 12-year pro career, so pretty impressive. She's been around for a while, 12 years as a pro. She's an announcer for Combate Americas, which is an English-language broadcast for Dazan. Um, so she does some broadcasting, does some commenting on mixed martial arts events. 
She was in a movie in 2013, a documentary called Fight Life. It was actually very critically acclaimed, a lot of awards. I haven't seen it. I mean, I got to check it out. But it's called Fight Life, a documentary in 2013. Former teammate of Misha Tate at Sigjitsu. Now, Sigjitsu is where Misha Tate used to be, but I believe she's now at Victory Academy, so she's no longer there. There was some beef between them, I guess, back in the day, but very small time beef. I don't even want to get into it. She gave birth to her first child in 2018. So she had a daughter in 2018, which is why she didn't fight in 2018. If you look at her tapology, she was not as busy around that time. She's been an underdog in her last three fights, including this fight. Now, she did win one of those last three fights um, as an underdog, but she has been an underdog in her last three fights. She came in as an underdog against Sarah McCann, won that fight round three via rear naked choke against Randomy. She was an underdog as well in that fight, and then she got choked out in round three. Um... She got arrested back in 2015. I just want to say this because, you know, sometimes people see, oh, you got arrested, whatever. She was with some teammates. They were out at a restaurant. Um, some pushing and shoving happened. One of her teammates got injured. She goes into a bar with some other people, you know, trying to sort of regroup. I guess she gets into it with some staff members there. Gets charged with like two counts of assault. But it was a slap on the wrist. The judge ended up telling her, listen, if you stay out of trouble, it just goes away. And that's what ended up happening. So if you read about her being arrested or some assault stuff, it was a very minor Probably misunderstanding to say the least, and so she ended up, you know, doing doing whatever she had to do, and so it's no longer on her on her record, or not even on her record. So, notable fights here for Pena: she lost via armbar to Valentina Shevchenko, and she lost via guillotine toke to Randomy. Those are probably the two most notable people that she's fought. Her biggest career wins, though, actually no, I'm time out. That's notable fights, but her biggest career wins: she beat Kat Zingano in 2015, and she beat Jessica in 2015 as well, and then she beat Sarah McCann earlier this year, a four year old Sarah McCann, that is, but. Um, so she's been in there with a few good fighters. She's not, you know, a rookie by any means. Some positives here about Pena. She's got a decent finish rate for women's. Okay, so she's finished three fights out of her 10 wins. So 10 total wins, she had three finishes. That's a third of the th third of the time she's winning by finish when she wins. That's a pretty high rate for any type of women's uh, weight class. Her experience, she's 11 UFC fights and ultimate fighting fights if you combine them together. So 11 times she's either fought on UFC card or ultimate fighting card. This is a positive and a negative. She's coming off of a win, right? Submission win over McCann, Sarah McCann. Um, and Sarah McCann is like McMahon. I keep saying McCann. Sarah McMahon, she's like, you know, she's 40 years old. Okay, she's 41 now, but she was 40 when they fought. So that's like not great. But Sarah McCann, like she did beat Lena Landsberg in 2020. And Lena Landsberg beat uh, Macy Chasson, you know? So like, you know, and in that fight, actually, Sarah McCann was winning round one and two of that fight against Pena. So if you go back and look at that fight, the link's in the description. She's losing round one and two, uh, Pena that is. She's on her back, not getting up. We're going to talk more about that in a second. And McCann had her, you know, had the win basically, but then got sloppy in the third round and allowed herself to get choked out. And so Pena picks up the win. That's a positive for Pena. Always good to come off of a win, right? But the negative is it was a 40-year-old opponent, a woman almost seven years her senior, um, eight years her senior, and, like, she was losing the fight until she got the submission. So, you know, one of those things where it's kind of like a positive and negative. So it was, Here's some negatives, some issues I have with Julia Pena. Number one, quickness-wise, she'll be a little slower than Amanda Nunes. Not because she's a slow fighter. Amanda's very quick. When you watch Pena fight, she could be a little slow at times. And so there'll be a quickness disadvantage for her. She's lost two of her last four fights, and she got finished in both those fights. She has one mixed martial arts win in the last four years. And that's obviously the last fight that she fought, okay? A low finish rate. She's got one finish in the last six years. Okay, she's had one finish in the last six years. Not a very active fighter either. She's had six total fights since 2016. So averaging just about a fight a year. Okay. She had a daughter in 2018, which makes sense as to why she didn't fight in 2018. But still overall, not a very active fighter. She's way too comfortable on her back. Um, that McCann fight, uh, or McMahon fight, uh, she's on her back. Uh, the randomy fight, she's on her back. And, you know, I get it. Maybe she's decent at jiu-jitsu. But you can't fight on your pack against these really good opponents. You're losing, you know, losing position time. She'll go for submissions. Like she'll go for a guillotine choke and fall on her back. And then uh, when she doesn't get it, she's on her back. So um, some of the issues that I had watching her on film. The fights that we watched on these two fighters here. For Amanda Nunes, we watched the fight against Megan Anderson where she triangle choked Megan Anderson. Um, the fight against Felicia Spencer um, as well for Nunes. Those two links are in the description. For Juliana Pena, we watched the fight against McCann, McMahon, like I said. And also the fight against Randomy. Those links are also in the description. So... You know, watch it at your leisure. This is not going to be a hard fight to break down. Amanda Nunes has the experience advantage. She has the IQ advantage. She has a cardio advantage, a finishing advantage, a boxing advantage, and a grappling advantage. And with Juliana Pena, for her, the biggest or the best part of her game is her boxing, her striking. Not a great kicker, but her boxing is pretty damn good. That's it, though. You know, once she gets into grappling, it becomes difficult for her. And a matter of fact, when she fought Randomy, 
She's in a situation where she has a double leg. You know, that's what she's going for. And it's it's not a bad move. Like, okay, do something. Change it up. You're getting beat in that fight. Get Randomy on her back. In the process of getting a double leg, she gets choked and put to sleep. And, you know, it just shows you. Even when Juliana Payne is trying to grapple and she's trying to initiate the grappling exchanges, she gets herself in some problems. I, I see that the best prop for this fight, a finishing prop, is Amanda Nunes by submission. She probably submits her in round one. Amanda Nunes is pretty strong. Not pretty strong. She's very strong in the clinch. Um, I see that that fight getting at some point to a clinch in round one, and Nunes will find an armbar or a triangle. And for Pena, you're better off losing that way because, quite honestly, you don't want to go four or five rounds with Amanda Nunes and get all banged up and leave there with a bloody nose and everything else. So it's probably better off for Julia Pena. If you're going to lose the fight, have it be by submission. Maybe get put to sleep. Don't even feel it. Uh, I'm just kind of joking. But the point is, you've got a very overwhelmingly favorite champion here at minus 900 to minus 800 to minus probably 1,000 by the time the fight comes around. And you got Juliana Pena. For these fights, I'm looking for, is there a way, right? Is there a path to victory for Juliana Pena? What would that path be? She'd be knocking out Nunez? Like, kind of hard to see that. Now, Nunez has been knocked out twice in her career. She has lost twice by TKO, like 30 years ago. But, you know, so that would be the path to victory. I don't see Juliana Pena having amazing power in her hands, okay? So she may land a punch or two. The minute Nunez takes this fight to the ground or to grappling, she'll end the fight. And I imagine for Nunez, she has a game plan. And her game plan is like, how do I get her out of here in round one? How do I get her out of here in round two? Because it's not that Amanda Nunez's mind's going around four or five and whatever else. She's got great cardio. It's just that for her, she's a perfectionist. Okay. She's she's painting a painting. She's Picasso out there. Okay. And unfortunately for Juliana Pena, she's the canvas. You know what I mean? And so when she goes in there, she's going to have a specific game plan. What do I want to do with her? She's watching film. She knows that obviously Juliana Pena is not good in the clinch. So I imagine a, a quick fight. You have to ask yourself the question, how much longer until we could see her square off against um, Harrison from the PFL. Amanda Nunes is a great champion, but she really could use some competition, not just for, for us as fans, but even just for her own legacy. And she wants competition. She wants to fight. But at this point, when you see a, an opponent like Juliana Pena, it's no offense to Juliana Pena, but it's like, goodness, could we get somebody for her to fight? These are like PFL odd numbers here. We got minus 900 for a co-main event for a championship fight. So it's not her fault at all. I'm going with Amanda Nunez, but I'm not saying anything to you that you, you wouldn't agree with. Everyone's going to be on Amanda Nunez. And again, if there's, if there's any way that you could find a way that Juliana Pena wins this fight, comment, leave, leave a note here for me. Let me know. Do you see something? Do you have a crystal ball? Is this going to be like Mike Tyson in Japan when he lost his fight? Um, give me anything you can have because I, I don't have anything here as to how Pena pulls off this upset. So Amanda Nunez wins the fight and still... Next up, we've got the main event here for UFC 269. It's going to be a lightweight bout for the title. Charles de Bronx Oliveira, who's a title holder, defending his belt against Dustin the Diamond Poirier. Poirier's on a legendary run right now with back-to-back -back wins over Conor McGregor. He's 28-6 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's currently a slight favorite of the money line. That could change. He's like a minus 165 to minus 150, depending upon your book. He hails out of Lafayette, Louisiana, which is where he's from, but he actually does his training camps in Coconut Creek, Florida at American Top Team. 32 years old, he's a father, he's got a daughter, he's a family man, married, 5'9 in height with 73-inch reach. As for Oliveira, who goes by the Bronx, he's 31-8 overall. He's on a winning streak right now, 5-0 in his last five fights. Slight dog here at plus 135, which is unique because he is a title holder, he's a champion. He's training out of Houston, Texas, 32 years old, 5'10 in height with 74-inch reach. He's training out of Shoot Box, Diego Lima, and Gold Team, Texas. Now, as for Tapology, the public vote here... Poirier is getting slightly more votes here with 61% of the votes coming in for Poirier and 39% of the votes coming in for Oliveira. Now, let's talk about some striking numbers here in these guys. Oliveira is landing 3.26 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 3.01. Poirier is a little busier. He's landing 5.62 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 4.19. Now, just a side note, Oliveira is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. Um, he could submit anyone. Anyone. Um, he's got a ton of submissions. I think he's got like 14 submission victories. Of the 31 victories he has in total, I think 14 of those that I saw in Tapology were by submission. So the guy is no joke. Um, that's going to be a danger. It's going to be a five-round fight. Um, Oliver is durable. He's shown that he can get hurt because even in the fight against Michael Chandler where he did, he did finish Chandler, which is impressive considering that Justin Gaethje could not finish Chandler and Oliver was able to finish Chandler and really you know hurt him. Um, it showed you another side of Oliveira, a guy who's submitting people left and right, but he went ahead and got a TK over Michael Chandler, who's a pretty, pretty tough guy. So anyway, just the output there, Dustin Poirier landing 5.62 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.19. So 
Um, if this fight's on the feet for most of the fight, uh, most people will tell you it's going to be you know in favor of Dustin Poirier. So as for takedowns now, for Oliver, he's landing 2.64 takedowns per 15 minutes or 2.64 takedowns per three-round fight. It's a five-round fight. You got to imagine he's going to try to get some takedowns. Dustin Poirier, who's five foot nine compared to five foot ten here to Charles Oliveira, he's a one-inch shorter fighter. Um, he's pretty good. He's pretty good at grappling. He's shown that. He's shown to be very durable. He can handle himself on the, on the ground. He's not a submission master by any means, but he's able to defend himself. Um, it won't be easy for Charles Oliveira to, to submit Dustin Poirier. That's what I'm saying. For Dustin Poirier, he's averaging just over a takedown and a half per 15 minutes, so not as active with wrestling, but he still can get a few trips, a few sweeps from time to time. Oliveira is take takedown defense is not great, 57%. And the same thing for Poirier, 61%. I'm going to imagine Oliveira will have to look for some takedown opportunities. That may even be like him falling to the ground and looking to grab a leg or a heel, um, some kind of a Mori roll, like just doing different things to try to bring the fight to the ground. That's what I'm imagining he's going to try to do. And for Dustin Poirier, he's going to try to fend that off and force Charles to fight his fight, which would be on the feet. Um, Power-wise, in terms of in their hands, I think there's a significant advantage there for Dustin Poirier. He can crack. He can crack with the best of them. He's got a lot of power in his hands. I could see him definitely touching Charles at some point, hurting him a little bit. Some notes here on these fighters here. So background information. Let's start here with uh, Charles Oliveira. So he grew up um, in Brazil. Grew up kind of a poor family. Um, one of the reasons why he's motivated right now to give back. Start off by playing soccer. Like he was into soccer as a kid. And at age seven, he was diagnosed with rheumatic fever and a heart murmur. <clears throat> now I think it was not the heart murmur that was a problem. It was the rheumatic fever. Ended up creating some kind of severe infection. He got very sick. It affected one of his limbs, his ankle. His ankle got like, I guess, all messed up. And at some point, his doctors said that he may become paraplegic. Like the dude may not be able to walk, may need some some kind of walking device or helper, or might be in a wheelchair of some kind. So he goes through all these medical issues as a young kid, you know, seven, eight years old. Gets through that, sort of kind of starts getting healthier, has a neighbor, has some family in the area that, you know, introduce him to some mixed martial arts, jiu-jitsu, whatever. He gets into that and it kind of helps him get, you know, healthy, get back on his feet. And so, you know, Long story short, he meets the right people there who kind of start guiding him in the right direction. Um, he still faced a lot of tragedy at the age of 14. One of his like main coaches who helped him, really introduced him to BJJ down there in Brazil, was shot and killed in just some crossfire and some gang violence there in the area. Anyway, um, Ultimate Fighter 2012, that was his first little sniff of UFC, and he submitted his opponent via, via submission and by a choke. Uh, most notable wins for him, Michael Chandler this past year, and that win is aging very nicely now, considering, again, that he knocked out Chandler and Justin Gaethje could not do that. And Justin Gaethje's got hell of a hell of punching power. And you saw that Chandler's got a hell of a chin. Um, so nice win there. Very nice win. Um, Tony Ferguson in 2020. I'll put an asterisk by that because Tony Ferguson, this is the old Tony Ferguson that we're seeing kind of like slow down now, not have as much you know, in the tank. Uh, most notable losses. He lost to Donald Cerrone in 2011. He got knocked out by Cerrone. He lost, lost to Cub Swanson by TKO in 2012. Um, he also lost to Jim Miller by a sub in 2010. He lost to Max Holloway in 2015 by TKO. So, you know, Oliver has been finished several times in his career. He's definitely been chin-checked. Um, and he had a few few moments. He had two different moments in his career, like two different runs, where like over a five- or six-fight span, he lost like four or five fights. And he did that twice in his career, but bounced back. I mean, right now he's at the peak of his career. He's at a point where... Most people will tell you he's at the best he's ever been, okay? Um, same time, so is Dustin Poirier. So some positive things here about Charles Oliveira. 28 UFC fights. He's 19-8-1 in the UFC alone. Pretty impressive. Um, he had a nine-fight winning streak at one point, okay? Nine-fight winning streak. His last loss, a little trivia for you guys, just a little side note. Trivia for you. Who's the last loss for Charles Oliveira? Paul Feldler. Check that out. So that was the last person he lost to. BJJ submission expert. This guy has 14 subs, as I mentioned, in his 31 victories. Very dangerous with subs. Some of the cons and negatives here on Oliveira. Um, we mentioned he did have some losing streaks during his career. Happened to him twice. I'm also going to question some of the recent competition. The Chandler win, awesome, amazing. But the prior wins before that, you know, it wasn't like he was fighting, you know, 
it wasn't fighting. He was fighting very good guys. You know, for example, the most recent notable wins for Charles Oliveira, Michael Chandler, as we mentioned. Then it's Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson, and Jerry Gordon. And of course, Tony Ferguson. Yes, he's, he's he used to be really good. The most notable recent wins here, the last few years. So this is within the last four years for both fighters. For Poirier, the last four years, his most notable wins. Beating McGregor twice. Dan Hooker, okay. Max Holloway and Justin Gaethje. I mean, which which list sounds like more impressive? So the reality is Dustin Poirier is fighting the better fighters right now um, and doing a hell of a job. I mean, I think Conor McGregor's kind of washed up. Um, he's like in the same boat as as uh, someone like Tony Ferguson, you know. But Max Holloway, still legit. Decision went over him. And Justin Gaethje is legit, you know. So that's, you know, sort of breakdown a little bit on Charles Oliveira. As for Dustin Poirier, background information, Grew up in Louisiana. In ninth grade, he dropped out of school. Was getting in trouble in school, getting into fights, getting into problems, you know, in the streets. So just dropped out. Age of ninth, you know, ninth grade. That's like what, 13, 14 years old. At 14, he got his first tattoo. Um, really big in charity. Um, does a whole bunch of stuff. He's got. What's more important about the charity too, I think, is well, not more important, but notable. He's able to motivate other fighters, his opponents, guys like Khabib Nurmagomedov, who donated to his charities or charity of choice or organization or things that he's organizing which is very impressive so even the opponents he's going up against his peers supporting you know his charity movement so it's pretty impressive he still resides in lafayette louisiana even though he trains on there in florida he's got poirier's hot sauce so he's actually got a hot sauce that he's he's marketing and pushing out there it's a cajun hot sauce again from like louisiana him and his wife have a child um the biggest wins of his career mcgregor Max Holloway, McGregor well, twice, obviously. Max Holloway, Eddie Alvarez, 2018. Justin Gaethje, 2018. Anthony Pettis, when he was still decent in 2017. And Jim Miller in 2017. Um, positive things about the way just Dustin Poirier fights. Balanced fighter, okay? He could fight on the feet. He could fight on the ground. Defend himself on submissions. Um, I'd say his boxing is probably his, his most, uh, you know, his, his, his uh, greatest attribute, right? That's where he's the most dangerous. That's where he could finish somebody. He's got a hell of a chin. He can get, he could take a hit. Okay. Um, and it's going to take more than one shot to take him down. Oliver is not known as really having knockout power. Yes. He just finished Chandler, but we'll see if he's going to be able to do that to a guy like Dustin Poirier, who's shown to have a very good chin character and reputation. I'd say for both these fighters, this is a you know big positive. Both these guys have shown to have very good character outside the ring. The way they talk to their ring outside the octagon, the way they talk to their opponents, the way they talk to the media, just, you know, high-level character and respect. Um, both come from very humble beginnings. You know, uh, quality losses. So quality losses here for for uh, Dustin Poirier. He's lost to McGregor, Michael Johnson, Cub Swanson, Sung Jung, and Danny Castillo. So all UFC guys. Um, hasn't had a loss in five years on a nice little run. So here's one of the – here's a list, a very thin list of the cons on Dustin Poirier. I had a really – like split here. So what's what's going on with him that I could poke at? Well, he's at the mountaintop of his career, I think. Um, and you know how that is. You're at the top of your career at a peak. Where can you go from there? It's like, so I think from one side of it, he is in a great place. Back-to-back -back wins over McGregor. He's made more money now recently than he's ever had in his career because he's fighting McGregor, big paydays. Will this maybe <clears throat> take some of that dog away? You know, will that dog fade a little bit now because he's got a little more money? Or we come out here even hungrier and like, I want to defend my, you know, my turf and keep this thing going and maybe fight McGregor for the fifth or sixth time and get paid even more, right? So um, that's one thing. Uh, he's been finished by submission twice. So not a big deal, figuring what, 34 total fights, but he has been submitted and Oliveira is a submission master. Um, and one more thing about his final few wins here. You know, he did beat McGregor. He did beat Dan Hooker. Those are his last two opponents. Those two guys are not looking so solid right now. Okay, so just putting it out there. But I do think the last few wins overall, last four years, he's definitely had the much harder competition. So when you line these guys up, minus 160 for Dustin Poirier, that's fair. It's more or less pick them. Okay, I, I do like that. I think Dustin Poirier is going to touch up Oliver. And if you want to get more specific, the TKO or somehow a finish by Dustin Poirier, well, not going to be a submission. Somehow some kind of a TKO, whether he rocks him on the feet, ground and pounds him, finishes it up that way. But I do see Dustin Poirier actually becoming the new champion. And it's a great script if you think about it. Because Charles Oliveira is only 32. He'll be back. Maybe not a direct rematch. But they'll fight again on the line. And maybe Oliveira picks up the win the next time. You know, 
He's a champ right now. He's defended his title already one time, Oliver, that is. Um, but this is going to be tough. I think it's Dustin's time. Like, doesn't it feel like it's Dustin's time? Like, the McGregor wins and everything else. Like, And then it would be better for, like, the next time that McGregor goes to fight him again, which would be probably, I don't know, next year or something like that, um, then McGregor would be going for the title. And then McGregor would probably win that fight. He'll be a champion again. You can see how this script goes, right? It goes on and on and on. But bottom line here, I, I hate going against Oliver. like his fighting style. Um, I like what he brings to the table, like his story, rags to riches, you know, that type of thing. Um, really nice guy. But so is Dustin. <laughs> Dustin's a really nice guy too. Really high quality character. I do like him. I just think the striking power of Dustin Poirier is a different tier. If it somehow goes five full rounds and goes to decision, which I'll be very surprised if it does that, it's going to be some damage on the face of Oliveira. He's going to show us that he's got a chin. He's going to show us that he's durable, that he could stand in there with a really good striker. I'm not sure he could do that. He's been clipped before. He's been finished before. He's covered up before. He's, he's the fighter that, like, if he's getting pounded out on the ground, he's not going to get, like, TKO'd and be out on the ground. He's going to cover up to the point where the referee says, okay, you're not fighting anymore. You're not responding. I got to stop the fight. So a little long-winded there, but I do like our American boy here, Dustin Poirier, Dustin Poirier hot sauce or Cajun hot sauce. If you haven't bought any, pick up some. You can find it online. Um, it's actually pretty good. I've had some myself.